Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We've done a lot of shows about Donald Trump, probably too many. Uh, but uh, we've talked about many things, his taste in movies, his racism, um, his physical appearance. But one thing that we haven't discussed, and of course his politics, one thing that we haven't discussed is his language, his rhetoric whether or not he's a demagogue, at least in terms of his language. Uh, Jennifer Murcia is uh, a professor of rhetoric um, at Texas A&M University and the author of a timely new book, Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Um, Jen, before we get into whether or not or how Trump is a demagogue, what exactly, and, and you deal with this very well, I think, in your book, you, you go back to the ancients, what exactly is a demagogue? Yeah, it's a difficult question because the word is um, sort of fraught with difficulties. When we accuse people of being demagogues, it's not usually a nice thing. Uh, but the literal translation just means a leader of the people. Um, and we would want someone to emerge from the people and lead them. So, you know, you have to think about under what conditions is someone a good demagogue or a bad demagogue. Uh, and so what I do is go back to the ancients, like you say, and um, for them, it was the criterion of accountability. A demagogue was, was a misleader of the people if they were unaccountable. They would go into the assembly and propose policy, and then they wouldn't be the ones who had to implement it. And so, you know, the Athenian city-state wouldn't be able to hold them accountable for whether or not the uh, policy succeeded. Plato, of course, was wonderful on this. And I wonder, in your mind at least, is there an element of the demagogue in Socrates, or is Socrates the anti-demagogue? <laughs> Well, I am a sophist, so asking me about Socrates is a little bit difficult for me. Um, so when you so say you're a sophist, <laughs> what, what, you mean you're a follower of Socrates? Well, it means that I am a teacher of rhetoric. So, right. Um, right so Socrates and Plato were um, against the sophists and have maligned them throughout history. So when we think of sophistry as a bad thing, uh, we're really hearing Plato echo you know, through the ages and, and speak to us directly. Um, but you know, to answer the question, was Socrates a demagogue? He was accused of it, right, of misleading the youth. Um, <sighs> I like dialectic, but it's a language game. So <laughs> it just depends on whether you think he was accountable or not. Well, I don't suppose either Socrates or Plato is listening to this show. But <laughs> one person who might be, because he doesn't seem to do much else except consume media, is Donald J. Trump, the president, the current president of the United States. Jen, you've done a wonderful job in your book reinterpreting or interpreting uh, Trump in, in, in the context of 
the, the demagoguery of antiquity. In your mind, is Trump a demagogue? And if he is, how and why? Trump is absolutely a demagogue. Um, so what I do in my book is I try to make a distinction between the heroic leaders of the people who defend the people's interests against the, against the other parts of the state and the dangerous demagogue who uses polarizing propaganda for his own or her own personal gain. Um, and the dangerous demagogue is someone who uses weaponized communication. And what I show in the book is that Trump actually said that he was going to be an unaccountable leader. That was, um, you know, sort of his rejection of political correctness, of elite leadership. He said he wasn't going to be beholden to the party, to the media, to standards of, you know, decency, <laughs> all kinds of things like that. Um, and, and he said that he was going to fight for his people and for their interests. And so Trump's followers during the 2016 campaign and since hear that and they see him as a heroic demagogue who is defending their interests. Everyone else sees him as a dangerous demagogue, someone who's using polarizing propaganda for his own gain. And then there's a third school who, who treat him as a successful demagogue. And you say, and I'm quoting you here, here, Trump himself is the most successful demagogue in American history. Is he even more successful than, than George Wallace? Well, yeah, George Wallace never became president. He didn't take over a party. So you essentially treat Trump's demagoguery as the heart of his politics. Uh, you, you seem to almost collapse ideology and demagoguery. Or is demagoguery a form of ideology? That's such a great question. Um, you know, I, I've really been impressed with um, people who write about authoritarianism and fascism and tyranny and, and all of those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, they have indicators of how democracies die, um, you know, and uh, ways that you see uh, democracies backsliding. And uh, as I read those things, what I interpret or take from them is really that there are parallels in how people use language. And so for me, you could tell that Trump was going to have authoritarian impulses, that he wasn't going to respect democratic norms. You could tell all of those things by the way that he used language, how he weaponized communication. How does he do it so successfully? Um, he seems, to me at least, to be a natural. It doesn't seem as if he gives it a lot of thought. Is it because he is a product of television, both in terms of his kind of input and output. He's almost a, a human manifestation of a television. I definitely think that's part of it. Um, you know, he's, he's definitely uh, a master of spectacle, of, you know, using that P.T. Barnum suspense. And, um, you know, he's not afraid of using hokum or lying or, you know, any of those things, humbug, hyperbole. Um, he definitely uh, is, has that showman quality. Um, but, you know, also he's, he's determined. Um, he's determined and defiant. Uh, he's determined to control the public sphere every day. If you think about um, what we talk about as a nation, it's pretty much been dominated by whatever Trump wanted us to talk about since uh, June of 2015. That's amazing. Um, and he's defiant. You know, it doesn't matter how many times the media or other politicians 
um, try to shame him. He refuses to be shamed. He refuses to be held accountable. Well, he's shameless, uh, though. I mean, isn't rather than is. refuses to be shamed, he he doesn't have an ounce of shame or an inch of shame in his uh, portly body. Is that because uh, narcissism and demagoguery also naturally go hand in hand? It may be. I'm not an expert on narcissism, so I can't say. Even though the ancient Greeks invented that concept as well. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you talk about the public and the private, uh, Jen. What do you think he's like privately? Do you think he uses the same kind of hyperbole, the same demagoguery uh, when he's talking to his wife or his kids? Is there a separation between the public and private traditionally in the life of the demagogue and particularly uh, in the life of uh, Donald J. Trump? Ah, uh, well, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I haven't met him personally. Um, I have had a conversation with uh, my Republican representative, um, and he claimed to me that Trump was, you know, very charming in person, very knowledgeable, um, and then that there was this performance, this other Trump. Um, so maybe that's the case. I don't know. But at the same time, um, one of the reporters who I talked to happened to meet up with one of Trump's ex-wives on Inauguration Day. And for some reason, this reporter asked the ex-wife if um, if it's really true that Trump uses paralipses all the time. You know, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. And uh, the, apparently the ex-wife just sort of lit up and was like, yes, he does that all the time. Um, and in my book, I say, you know, it's a way of uh, saying two things at once so he can't be held accountable, you know, so it's sort of the central um, rhetorical figure that really tells you that he um, is an unaccountable leader. And, uh, and and she confirmed that he used it. So maybe he's like that in private as well. Do you think some words are, are essentially code? The word that he uses all the time, which I'm very curious about, is horrible. Whenever he doesn't like anyone, he calls them horrible. And in a way, it's a kind of understated word, and yet he uses it particularly against women. Yeah, he uses horrible, nasty. Um, he, I think he likes to use disgust words. Um, you know, in my book, I explain how Trump reified women, so he treats them as objects. And what was interesting to me about that is I tell three stories of reification in my book. One is about how he reified uh, Mexican immigrants. Another one is about how he reified Muslim refugees. And then this third story was different in that instead of being, you know, hated and dangerous objects, um, he treated women in two different ways. Uh, if they were useful to him, they were beloved and treasured objects. But if they were not useful to Trump, if they didn't make him look good, if they weren't beautiful, they weren't working hard for the Trump brand, um, you know, then they became hated objects. And so, um, yeah, I think that, that he, he tends to have a sort of collection of words of disgust that he associates with uh, women in particular when they're hated objects. Why do you think, and I, I'm speaking on behalf of you and me and most of probably the audience, wh why is our liberal elite so horrified by Trump? It's not just the ideology, is it? It's the whole, and you used this word earlier and perhaps we'll come back to it, it's the whole spectacle of Trump. Yeah. So one of the things that um, I think is in the book, but I really have sort of reflected on after um, I wrote the book, is the way that 
you know, there's a, a sort of traditional or normy political spectacle. Um, this would be, you know, the way that politics is, as usual has operated um, since the television era, you know, described by academics like Murray Edelman, um, the Society of the Spectacle, Guy Debord, uh, people like Baudrillard. And, and, you know, the Democratic Party and the sort of elite, the establishment media, they all operate under the rules of the normie political spectacle. Um, and, and maybe that's fine or maybe that's bad. I'm not sure. Um, that's maybe another conversation. But Trump doesn't. He operates under a whole new spectacle, you know, sort of info warrior, Alex Jones, uh, you know, <laughs> um, in the Rush Limbaugh school. Um, and it's primarily based on outrage, uh, polarization, you know, very different from a kind of consensus view of how the public sphere should work. Um, and so I think that fundamentally what we see is a struggle over, um, you know, who gets to set the nation's agenda and how, uh, you know, the political spectacle itself will function. And, and I don't know how that will play out. You, you've, you've used the word spectacle a couple of times. You mentioned Guy Debord, the French founder of situationalism and, 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 a, and a theorist who kind of invented the notion of the spectacle. Uh, but. Hasn't this idea, and Debord, of course, in, in some ways, I guess, is, uh, is, is, is part of the Frankfurt School. You also end your book with Adorno and Horkheimer and that tradition. Isn't Trump himself, at least from the point of view of perhaps somebody like Debord, and, and certainly from Adorno's point of view, a manifestation of the kind of crisis or end of modernity? Yeah, I think he is. <laughs> I think he is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I like Adorno and Horkheimer and DeBoard um, for, you know, the various ideas that they bring to this question. You know, I think that what Adorno and Horkheimer were trying to make sense of, you know, post-World War II is sort of similar to, you know, the struggle that we have now, I, you know, I, the age of uh, catastrophe, right, where mm. everything is changing and you know, in all ways, you know, the way we move, the way we communicate, um, how we live, how we make our money, all of those things are, are destabilizing changes. And, um, you know, when media is at the core of it, um, you know, it, it makes it either a problem or uh, a solution, you know, and, and I think at this moment, it's probably more of a problem. So I, I really did find them to be sort of allies for helping me to understand yeah, and uh, you, we, we, we joked about um, um, Plato and Socrates coming back to life to listen to this show. If I could bring somebody else back to life, it would be de Tocqueville. Because, of course, in the 19th century, he reported to Europe on America as the future in, in terms of democracy, both its strengths and its weaknesses. And I'm guessing, again, America is the future, particularly from the point of view of of, of American theory, I guess the next generation of, of, of De Boers and uh, Horkheimers and Adornos are all, 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 all watching and listening to, to Trump as you are doing and trying to interpret him. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, I hope we don't learn too much from Trump. Um, <laughs> one of the things that has been unsettling um, for me as a, a scholar of democracy in the public sphere 
is, you know, I was always led to believe that when the counter public or the subaltern um, spoke, um, that it would bring more justice for everyone, right? That these suppressed voices, um, you know, that the dominant public sphere uh, papered over, you know, sort of the manufacturing of consent argument, that um, that, that was, you know, a, a form of violence even. And <laughs> turns out that in 2016, the subaltern or counter public did speak and, you know, they were white nationalists and neo-Nazis. Um, you know, not all of them, but uh, uh, they certainly led the conversation in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, that's to me has been very unsettling. It's making me sort of question what um, what what I think I know about the public sphere and how it works. You, in, in your discussion on dem on on demagoguery, you suggest that there are both good and bad forms of, of the demagogue. Um, so so what is the way to fight Trump? Uh, you talk about weaponized rhetoric. Is there a peaceful kind of rhetoric? It, it seems to me the problem with Biden is he's playing another game to Trump. Um, and perhaps the most effective way, and I, I, I don't know whether this is true or not, but perhaps the most effective way of, 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 of confronting Trump is by turning rhetoric on him, or perhaps it's, it's as Biden is doing and just uh, behaving as if Trump's rhetoric didn't really exist. Yeah, I've been fascinated to try to um, see how Biden's going to play this out. Uh, he certainly seems to be playing, you know, the normie politics and the normie political spectacle game. Um, and that might be a good strategy for 2020. I mean, you know, uh, people were were voting for Biden, even though it didn't seem like Biden had, you know, great enthusiasm in in media mentions and things like that. And I think it sort of took the political elite by surprise, or some of them, maybe the pundits, um, when the party sort of coalesced so quickly around Biden. Um, and for the sort of left side of the Democratic Party, um, you know, I think they were they were really surprised and um, and even angry because they didn't think that Biden was, um, you know, like you said, sort of making arguments in a way that were, were going to defeat Trump. Um, but what I took from that was that people are tired, you know, Trump is exhausting and they just want a return to normal, you know, whatever they think that is. Um, and so Biden seems calming. He seems, you know, to be a part of that old political spectacle before Trump took over. And, you know, that maybe that's very appealing for them. Um, he also has that ethos of, um, of care, you know, that, you know, he'll, he'll sit with you if you're, your family's in the hospital and you're in the waiting room. You know, he's, he's that kind of person who will hear your story and tell you one of his own and he knows how you feel. And, um, you know, I think that we've been through some traumas, <laughs> certainly over the last year, um, but even over the last five years. And that kind of leader might be what people want. That may be true in the short term, but in the longer term, I think that Trump's rhetorical genius will will leave a a very profound legacy on American politics. Are, are there rhetorical geniuses on the left that you see? Uh, Oprah Winfrey, perhaps, or, or one of the the 
the the Daily Show characters, a John Stewart, a Stephen uh, Colbert. Sure, I mean, there's there are lots of people that are brilliant or genius at using language. Um, you know, Barack Obama was a very effective communicator. A but, great he wasn't storyteller. A demo- but he wasn't a demagogue. Obama, no, he? no, he wasn't a demagogue. Um, yeah. So if you're asking me if there are any like heroic demagogues or dangerous demagogues on the left. Either. Yeah, I think. Think oh, I'm going to get in trouble probably. Um, I think well, probably. I want you to, you need, that's why I come on this show to get in trouble. I think probably Bernie Sanders is um, leaning towards the dangerous demagogue side. Um, you know, I haven't studied his rhetoric as carefully as I have Trump's, but you know, he does some things like, well, his supporters at least do things that, um, you know, are incredibly aggressive and intimidating to people who think differently, um, and especially online, especially with women. Um, you know, so, so that makes me wonder, but again, I haven't studied his rhetoric very closely. Um, I think that, you know, maybe just continuing with that side of the left, I think maybe AOC is, um, more of a heroic demagogue. She's very good at, um, you know, sort of representing the people in her district and, and people like those people. And, um, and she does seem to be accountable. So, you know, I, I think there's, there's, there's different ways to, um, <laughs> I think there's different ways to perform leading the people and, uh, you know, maybe a continuum of heroic to dangerous. Finally, uh, Jen, um, Everyone, of course, should read your timely new book, Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. But you're stuck in Texas, if that's the right way of putting it, uh, during the pandemic. Everybody else is staying at home. We're reading more and more books. Uh, Is there a book or two that you would suggest people read, perhaps as a compliment to yours or perhaps as a way of forgetting the uh, rhetorical genius of Donald Trump? (laughs) Um, You know, there's there's. Three that I think are really relevant that are out already, um, and, and your reader, your listeners may have already read them. But um, "How Democracies Die" from Ziblatt and Levitsky is very important. Uh, Tim Snyder's "On Tyranny" is just a tiny little book with a lot of really um, good, succinct ways of understanding the moment. And then Jason Stanley's "How Fascism Works." is another book that um, is really sort of short and to the point and um, helps you to understand what we're going through. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.